0: <clears throat> podcast Network Asia. It was always like an idea in my head. I've always thought I, I've probably got quite a good chance of playing for the Philippines.
1: In this episode, we continue our chat with Kaya FC Football Academy director and host of the Across the Line podcast, Chris Greatwich. He shares those early days of the Ascal's rise and the role of his mother as a catalyst, He also discusses living in the Philippines with his English wife and two sons. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. This is a question I've had for years and years. I finally got to ask Omid, and that was, how does someone get the number 10? on a football team. <laughs> and he explained it to me and I said, but who gives it? Who gives you the number 10 jersey? Is it the coach? Is it the team? Is it, and he just, he said, no, it's like a, you, you just sort of know who deserves <laughs> number 10. And I don't know, do you have any insight on that? Because that was literally an itch I wanted to scratch for like five years. How does someone get number 10?
0: Yeah, so basically your number 10 if you look at it in a kind of traditional number format, one, one to 11, so obviously one is always the goalkeeper. Then it's like positionally on the field. So like two, three, four, five will be the defensive line, r- roughly depending on whatever formation you use. And then if you look at like an English way of doing it, seven plays on the right, 11 plays on the left. And then six and eight would be your, your two central midfield guys. And then your number nine is the guy who scores all your goals traditionally, right? Your number 10 is like your creative spark. You're like the player with the most imagination, basically your most skillful player. That's like traditionally how, how it kind of operates. And then it, that that number became a more positional thing as you move forward with the times. But traditionally, like, you know, Maradona wore 10, Pelé wore 10. It's just the number that's given to the, to the best player normally. That's just how it works. When I first came to the national team, I was hell-bent on getting a number 10. I was like, I'm definitely getting this, no matter what. So I was the number 10 for the longest time. And then ironically, in 2010, I didn't join like the preliminary games. I wasn't involved with it. So Phil Younghusband took number 10. He would always be been number nine. But it's fine. I wasn't there, so I had no right to claim it. And then what was really ironic was when I went to the tournament, I actually ended up replacing someone else. So if you look at the 2010 Suzuki Cup that I played in, my number and the lettering on my shirt is different to everybody else. So, um, yeah, it's quite, quite, I've actually got the jersey over here somewhere. I'll show you later. Oh my gosh, Um, I'd love to see that. it's, It's framed up, yeah. But I took the number 18. and number 18 in itself is quite a special number to me. So... So, normally in the, in the olden days, it would be one to 11. And each game, whoever starts would get a one to 11. But as time wore on, you were issued what's called squad numbers. So, you would be given one number, and that would be your number for the whole season. So, what would happen is people would get attached to those numbers. So, like, let's say if you're a young player coming through the system and you get, I don't know, 14 or 16. But you burst on the scene and you do well. You keep your number. You're like, oh, no, I like that number. Now I'm going to keep that. For, it's my lucky number or whatever. So I took 18. First game, I scored with it. Second game, I scored with it. I was like, right, that's it. I'm keeping 18 now. Phil, you can have 10. That's, that's my number for life. So now I've kept that number now. So obviously until I retired, that number is, there's a lot of really famous players who have that number. So I was like, no, nah. And people, players who I liked and admired growing up. So I was like, no, nah, I'll keep that number. That's my number now so yeah number 10 was always my number that i loved growing up it's a number that's hanging up on my wall at home but that's not my number anymore my number is is 18 and yeah phil young husband can keep the 10 that's his now
1: okay so the other itch i really want to scratch is those early days of the philippine national soccer team Mm -hmm. i guess the renaissance for lack of a better word i think before you joined the team before the young husbands did ranked somewhere in the 170s maybe even lower and yep. at its highest the philippines has been ranked at 116th in the world tell me about those early days whose idea was it to actually get players like you like the young husbands and on and on and on
0: yeah i mean i'll have to take a little bit of give a little bit of credit to my mom here so basically It was always like an idea in my head. I've always thought I've probably got quite a good chance of playing for the Philippines. I mean, I like playing for England was probably the dream growing up because you have to be one of the best players on the planet to play for England. Right. So I was like, that was always the dream. But then you kind of realise, look, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of other really good footballers. So, as that dream kind of dwindles, you're like, okay, well, maybe I can explore this avenue. So my mum ended up coming back to the Philippines. It was in quite sad circumstances. So my grandmother had passed away. So she came to the funeral. And this would have been 2002, 2003. It was 2002. So she came. And in a kind of weird set of circumstances, she ended up staying with my cousin in Pasig, And honestly, it was next door to where the Philippine Football Federation offices were which was in ultra I don't know if you've, if you've been there but so she literally walked up to the office and knocked on the door and was like hey yeah can I speak to someone my sons play football it was like yeah exchange details yeah here, this is this is uh, what we have coming up this is the schedule nothing interesting was really coming up and we didn't hear of anything for for a couple of years I think received an email in 2004 from um, Ares Kaslib, who was the head coach. He said, look, I'm setting up the team. Would you be interested in, in coming out and, and joining um, a selection process? I think it was in like, October of that year for the what was called the Tiger Cup, which was sponsored by a big, um, a big beer company at that time. So that was formerly, that was the Suzuki Cup as we know it now. So I said, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll fly out. I'll, I'll join the camp. Yes, I was the first one kind of who flew in outside of the you know Philippine uh, football network and and joined the squad. There was another guy, Chad Gould, who came in at the same time, but he was actually in the Philippines at the time. Yeah, so we we just joined the camp. So Darren Hartman was the other one, and he 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 also flew in. So ended up making the team, uh, made my debut that year, started for the national team, and. and I think quickly established myself. I think Aris and I had a really good relationship. We understood each other really well. And I think he sort of realized quite quickly, like, okay, we're onto something here.
1: This was 2005, 2006
0: by this, by this point. This is 2004. 2004. Okay. I better get my dates right. 2004 Suzuki, uh, Tiger Cup. Okay. So 2005, C Games rolls around and I end up not going I ended up not going because of my issues with, um, in the U.S. I basically had to stay because we had, uh, I think my team made the NCAA tournament at the time, my college team, so I ended up staying. But my middle brother, Philip, goes out. Phil and James, young husband, they also go out. And the Sea Games is held in the Philippines, and it's wild. It's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, like 30,000 people in Bacolod. The team performs really well. And then that's when the sort of the pandemonium, I think, around the teams just, it it began really at that point. And then the ball's rolling. The following year, we go back to Bacolod for the uh, ASEAN Cup qualifiers. So the Tiger Cup before, everyone just went, you just went to the tournament, you didn't have to qualify. The following campaign, you had to qualify. So the qualifications were actually in Bacolod. So I came out for that. So this time it was me, my brother, Phil, James, uh, Matthew Hartman, also another English guy, came out. So, yeah, and then each year it just seemingly we added and added and added someone from, you know, a different a different country, a different corner of the globe. Uh, and then before you knew it, like, we were getting pretty good. You know, we were going to these competitions and, and, and performing really well. And you could sense that something was brewing, but we weren't able to necessarily make the jumps and the steps that we really wanted to. Uh, I think a lot of the time because of the administration at the time wasn't the best organized, so we weren't participating in things like World Cup qualifiers or or, or games that we needed to boost our ranking, and that only really occurred after 2010. So um, that Suzuki Cup campaign was really the one that that sent us over the top, and, and that's when the you know I mean everything really changed after that point, um, and and. Really set us up for what we know now as as the Ascal's properly. Um, wow! So yeah, said, I was, that was the watershed moment, really.
1: Yeah. Does your mom get any credit for for this? Be, because I, you know, in that story, she is the hero. She, in a way, opened up the store for you, and there, there needed to be a first one. And you were that. Does she, does she recognize that? Do, you, do other people know, oh, it's actually mom, great witch, who made this happen?
0: Um, I don't know how well told that story is. Obviously, when I'm doing a podcast, I'm the one asking the question. So yeah. I've told it a few times. And I think within our small network and community, it's, it's known. Yeah. I don't think it's known necessarily on the broader scale. There might be like some assumption that, you know, the Philippine Football Federation had been really diligent about scouting all of the best Filipino talent across the globe, which definitely was not the case. Yeah, Phil and James's one is a little bit more well known because they were found off a computer game. That was quite a like well known one. That yeah, so that's an interesting story in itself. Yeah. So we're all found differently, like or yeah, really obs- obscurely. Yeah, maybe she doesn't get the credit that she deserves, but um yeah maybe this podcast will go some way to rectify (laughs) that.
1: yeah and that would have been really the ripe time because if filipinos were traveling en masse in the 70s 80s that time that you guys came up would have been the very ripest of times to recruit the filipinos who had been playing in these clubs and grown up in these clubs all over the world will return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment.
0: There's often that trade-off, like, I, and I'm not sure if I'd want my kid, you know, or try to gear up, gear him up to to put him through the fire in the hopes that he's going to be this once-in-a-generation footballer, because I think. Yeah, you might be a fantastic footballer, but all those other things that you might have to trade off, you know, I'm not sure if that's the type of environment you you want to put your kid through.
1: This show is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details, so we can focus on making the best content for you. Visit Podmetrics.co. And sign up for free. Use code partially pinoy. You know you're married and you have children, and I'd love to hear you know the perspective of your wife, maybe of the culture because she lives there now, and so I'd love to hear about that. But tell me, you did you grow up going to the Philippines, or that really only happened after this event in your mom's life?:
0: Yeah, we, we went twice when I was really young one of my first memories is of being in the Philippines, I was think maybe four, four years old, five years old, um, being in Bohol with my relatives. But it's pretty hazy. Like, I don't really recall too many things, just like sort of flashbacks of me meeting certain family members, etc. Uh, and then I didn't come back until that 2004 campaign. So there was this period of, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I must have been 20 one at the time so yeah you're talking maybe 15 16 years where i hadn't been back so a good time to come though because obviously i was able to really appreciate the philippines do whatever i wanted to do see whatever i was on my own at the time when i came here so yeah did a lot of exploring and that was that was really where i started to forge my you know real perspective on what the philippines was like because prior to that it was only really what i heard from from my family members, or you know, I heard from people who had been to visit. But I hadn't really been there to sample it firsthand. Certainly not in in my you know later teen years or, or adult life. So um, that was a real eye opener for me because it was how I in, in, envisaged it, like through pictures or movies or TV that I'd seen. It was exactly you know, the hustle, the bustle, the noise, the traffic, the the pollution. You know, the um, the jeepneys. You know, all those sorts of things that you have as your archetypal Filipino imagery, you know, but they, obviously to see it up front and in real life was, was, was really amazing. So yeah, something that really stands out in my memory for the first time when I came here when I was 21.
1: Yeah. Those first few weeks and months. And, and how was it for you? I know for me growing up, you know, when you're even a little bit foreign and it was much rarer back then, you just get a lot of attention all the time, just because you slightly, you look slightly different from everybody. And of course, like having a big, Actually, a small and only child, but I have my Persian mom, and then her sisters came to visit, and so something about that, I was always feeling in the Philippines like I got a little more attention than I needed to or deserved, and so I wonder for you, you now go from you know England uh, and that experience to coming to the Philippines, and on a day to day basis, I'm sure because of your differentness, you get you get this type of attention, like how was that for you? How did that open you up or close you up and and everything that goes with that?
0: Yeah, I think there's 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 obviously like a perceived level of um status or prestige that comes with being a mestizo. There's an assumed level of wealth or or you know you, you must live in, in 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 certain level of comfort. Um, listen, I'm from a very working class background, you know, like my dad a roofer and my mum did various jobs growing up so i certainly didn't grow up in a wealthy household so that for me was quite surreal when you know you go places and people are assuming that you come from some sort of prominent background but i also do understand that if you know you're slightly lighter skinned or you have Europe, certain european features there is that preconception and with that comes pros and cons right I, I, I didn't really find it unsettling or any different. It was just something like, well, okay, that's yeah, something that I need to process and and, and understand. I, I wouldn't say it affected me in any way. It was just something you had to to adapt to, that people would look at you in, in, in a different way. I think more so really with my wife, that's when I started to get, a, it became a little more uncomfortable. She's white, she's got blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, like the Aryan... Uh, poster child, if you will. So it was like, wow, people were like really, you know, wanting to touch her hair. I remember we stayed at my uncle's place and he had a place in the bay near um, CCP. So we would often have to cross rockus Boulevard to go from his house to get to the Bay Area where there were some really nice restaurants. But crossing rockus Boulevard is pretty sketchy. You know, there's a lot of people out there, you know, selling shelves and street kids and stuff like that. And that's quite tough to take. Obviously, when they're trying to touch your hair and trying to sell you stuff, there's one half of you that's like, look, this is really sad. Uh, it's hard to see people living in these types of impoverished conditions. Then there's also the element of like, I've got to try and protect my wife here because this, this could escalate to something bigger. That's, that was more difficult. Well, not so much with myself. I can, that, that was fine with me you know, looking a little bit different or having European features. That's fine. But more so when my wife came here, like that's when it started to become really evident that, okay, I need to keep my wits about me here because something could escalate or, they, or, 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 or this could become a, or an uncompromising position, if that makes
1: sense. Set boundaries.
0: Yeah, definitely. Which is not necessarily Filipino strong suit is, is understanding boundaries. So yeah, that, that was for me the more harder element of, of this. N- not so much with me, more so with my wife and a little bit more now with my kids as well.
1: Yeah, I I have a a white American friend who lived in the Philippines for two years, and he said people would go up to him and say, "Oh, wow, you're so handsome. Your skin is so white. Your arms are so hairy. Your nose is so big." And he said, "Like those are literally the three things I hate about myself."
0: Yeah, and it's it's horrible, isn't it? Like my my wife was like, "Why is there like loads of commercials for whitening products?" You know, like it's, it's like everyone surely everyone wants to have like a decent tan, you know, have a nice glow. Yeah. which I was like no 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 it's like that's not it people are, like consuming glutathione by the by the bucket load you know and I'm like wow this is this is so so different to what we're kind of accustomed to but I understand it because it all comes with status right it's like the people that they see on their on their tv shows uh, even the the, the, the f- full filipinos you know they're all lighter skinned you know they have a fairer complexion they have european features so that's that's the sort of aspirational element that they that they want to get on board with. So yeah, that but that was a difficult thing to understand at first.
1: Yeah. Chris, how did you meet your wife? And and then how did you convince her to move with you to the Philippines?
0: Mm, uh yeah, good question. So I think maybe going back to what I said before about football being um being something that gives you like an elevated level of prestige and confidence. We actually met at high school, but we'd known each other since we were little kids. So ironically, I was telling you about my mum working as an auxiliary nurse. She actually worked with my wife's mum back in that nursing home. So um, we went to two different elementary schools, went to the same high school. um, And we'd known each other probably, yeah, I mean, about 14 maybe. And then we started 15, 16 going out. Um, We broke up for a while. We moved to America. We broke up and then got back together um in my early 20s and then yeah been together ever since and she's yeah been stupid enough to follow me around uh, the world so yeah very lucky to have a an understanding wife who is willing to go on these adventures with me because i'm a bit yeah i'm a bit of a crackpot at times i do like to have crazy ideas and think we can do things that that seem a little bit outside the box but she's she's game for it and i really appreciate that um you moved to america with me and then once we, we sort of built up a really nice life for ourselves in in New Jersey we loved living there we still love America now
1: which part of New Jersey did you live
0: we live in, we live in Morristown
1: okay you know um, we live when you lived on the east coast you were in in New Jersey for a couple of years but um, around you know the year after Thomas Rodriguez did his six goals in the world cup he came to New Jersey Or Colombia did. There was a friendly between Colombia and El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, Chris, watching Hamas in person, just the way he moved, the way he ran, the way he, you know, just had this incredible control of his body. And it was just a friendly. And I was just amazed by the quality of, of his physicality on the field. It was amazing to watch his body move. It was completely different from everybody else.
0: Yeah, it's almost arti- artistic, isn't it? He, 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 and, and he is your archetypal number 10, right? He is almost poetic, you know? Poetic,
1: and, and the leadership. I think one thing that struck me about that particular World Cup is that, you know, he would score a goal and then he would dance, he would lead the dance, and then he always made sure that he was the first one to stop dancing and it's it was such a subtle way of showing leadership and i thought oh this guy he deserves the position he has because he he needs to be the first dancing and the first one out of the dance yeah yeah i, I couldn't I, when i saw him do that i thought was this something he just knows instinctively that he has to be the first and he has to continue leading in every space that he's in or is that something that's taught
0: i mean especially as i've become older like i've been more Intuitive about, and more diligent, I would say about learning about leadership. I think as you're growing up, certainly as a player, like maybe you might read books or you might listen to podcasts or or whatever the medium you use to to gather information about leadership. But I think as I've grown into like come out of the game and managing my own academy, certainly learning about leadership. There's so many different forms of leadership when you're growing up, especially in the UK. You think kind of Winston Churchill you know, rousing speeches. And on the field, you think of like these all-action leaders who can run, tackle, you know, vote, very vocal. That was always the thing growing up in the UK. You had to be like this vocal leader. But I think as, as time has worn on, I think there's different leadership styles. I think there's a place for all types of leaders. You know, you're more, uh, you know, those Churchillian leaders are fine in, in, in certain set of circumstances. But I think that especially in the modern day, like you're talking about something like James, like you wouldn't see him as an archetypal leader when you, you know, if you want to look it up in a dictionary, you wouldn't necessarily see someone who, I mean, he wouldn't be the biggest player on his team. He wouldn't be the strongest. He wouldn't necessarily be, I would say maybe the most vocal, but he can lead by example. You can lead by, you know, subtle interactions with your teammates, with your colleagues and I think that type of leadership is coming more and more to the fore, especially in today's society. Like, I don't think you can be as bullish. You, you need to be a little more subtle. Uh, you need to be a little bit more creative about how you and how you deliver the message. I think that's the big, big one. So you can say what you want. You can be as direct as you want. But I think if you can do it in a manner that, you know, especially culturally here in the Philippines where you, the individual doesn't lose face, you know, when you're talking to someone, I think that's a huge, huge thing that I've learned coming here because I, when I first came here, very, very like, listen, you need to do this. This is what you need to do. Just do it because I'm telling you to do it. And that does not work. <laughs> and I learned that the hard way. You know, you do need, and I think for me as, as a leader, like that's something that I've acquired with time and it's made me a better leader. I, I don't get it right all the time. There, there's times that I just lose, lose it. And I'm like, wow, I should have handled that situation a lot better. And then you learn from it. But I think, yeah, the, going back on the Hammers thing, like he's a great leader and, and definitely one who can lead by example, you know, always, like you said, being, I'm sure he's first on the training field last to leave. You know, I, I, I bet he's, he's doing all of the diligent work that he needs to do to demonstrate Look, this is what it takes to play at the top level. Yeah. And that by osmosis is, is transmitted to, to the rest of the team.
1: Yeah. We we got very lucky when we were living in New York. Uh, we were able to get tickets for my husband to see the Lakers play the Knicks when Kobe Bryant scored his then it was infamous 61 points the first time he done it. I remember
0: it. the game, yeah. I the remember, game. It, yeah.
1: So, my husband was there. He was there early and he he said the same thing exactly what we're saying. Kobe was there before everybody else. He immediately started doing drills. And he was in a zone. Everyone else was, they were high fiving each other and, you know, talking and laughing. He was separate from everybody and he was in the zone as soon as he got on. He said he he just, he was a different person from everybody else. And so it's the same thing. And I, you know, I wonder for myself as a mother, you're a father, is this, in a way, you think, gosh, these men must have been born this way, but they had to have had an environment that, nurtured it, but there's only so much an environment can do. I'm sure this topic we could talk about for three hours, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on-
0: Yeah, look, I mean I, I I also think like with that, I think that type of scenario, that environment that, that's really like you said, really hard to replicate. And it's only for the few. There's a reason why there's only where was only one Kobe Bryant, one Michael Jordan. You know, these are once in a generation type individuals. And if you actually look beyond their basketball skills, you know, often there's a lot of flaws. Like, I mean, I don't know if you saw the last dance, but I mean, Michael Jordan came across as being a very difficult teammate. And I know Kobe Bryant had his issues with being a teammate. I was watching the Tiger Woods documentary recently and, and you know, incredible as a golfer, but, you know, as a person, he, he's, he's had these moments of, you know, real difficulty and, and problems in his personal life. So I think there's often that trade-off. Like, I, and I'm not sure if I'd want my kid you know, or try to gear up, gear him up to, to put him through the fire, in the hopes that he's going to be this once in a generation footballer. Because I think, yeah, you might be a fantastic footballer, but all those other things that you might have to trade off, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's the type of environment you you want to put your kid through. I think there's also different ways in which you can do it. And like for me, having two boys that love playing sport, the older one is showing some promise at the moment. The younger one's only three. I mean, he loves it, but I'm not going to proclaim he's going to be the next big thing but i think it's just providing that uh, an environment that's as nurturing as possible like that that's the way i see it um and then the rest of it you know a lot of it is going to be through experience and so it's things that you really cannot provide as a parent you know some of the most difficult things that i've had to go through i've hated and i'm going through it like i'm looking at my career when i was 16 and i was at Brighton. And, you know, training with men just every day, getting racially abused, getting physically kicked, beaten up, getting asked to do horrific menial tasks. But those are the things an adult that I appreciate now and know that that's what's made me the man I am today. Now, did I like doing it at the time? No, I absolutely despised it. I hated it. And it caused me to really dislike football. And for a long time, I went completely off the rails. There's no way I'm going to say to anyone like, yeah, that's a good idea. Go and put them through the fire because some people don't come back. You know, some people, You know, a lot of my friends who went through that were like, no, I'm not playing football anymore. I don't like it. So, you know, it's not for everyone. And a lot of those experiences you cannot provide as a parent. So I think... A lot of that, yeah, I'm a big believer in providing that environment for your kids. So if it's my son, I've got balls all over the house, indoors. My wife hates it. He's kicking footballs in the house. He's breaking stuff, but I don't care because he's getting little touches in. that He doesn't even realise and manipulating that in his favour a little bit. And I have done since he was really young. But by the same token, I'm not going to be outside like forcing him to do drills at six years old you know it, it's, it's just not the way I don't think I think you're going to end up with yep you might have a brilliant footballer on your hands Andre Agassi another famous one you know his dad was like that but then I think you're going to get a fractious relationship down the line or someone who's not a very well-rounded individual I don't want the kids my kids to live my dreams for me you know if he wants to be a footballer fine you can do that but you know I think that's um, that's really difficult and there's a reason why Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant right there's a reason why he's different to even. Yeah, to get to the NBA alone, you've got to be an unbelievable athlete. And then for him to be an unbelievable athlete amongst other unbelievable athletes, it's going to take something that very, very, very few people have got. So I think that's when you're talking about that. Like you said, there's got to be something in his, in his makeup that's not just provided by his environment that's got to be forged. I'd imagine through his DNA.
1: Yeah. So if your son came to you and sort of declared, look, I know in my bones that this is what I want to do with my life. Then you can, as a parent, say, "Okay, it's on. You want to do drills? I'm I'm there for you. You want to be here? I'll I'll take you there." And and so I think th- you cannot underestimate the power of that internal desire from the child. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think also a lot of, a lot of that is is more like, especially being in there in the more traumatic times, you know, periods. You know, I'm a big believer that talent does need trauma. So I think if you're going to provide that environment and you think you're going to provide that by giving them this really cushy, okay, I'm going to, I've always got the cones set out for you. I've always, that's not, that's not going to work. Yeah. That's not going to fly. I'm going to go and put you in the best team, you know, and I'm going to get you the best coach. It's not going to work. You're almost better off, right? I'm going to go take you to Tondo. You're going to go and play street football with these kids and I'll go pick you up in an hour. You got yeah. to survive. <laughs> you know, like almost that which is not the safest, you know, you could get into a fight, you, you know, you might get beaten up, but, you know, so these are the sorts of things, I guess, as a parent, you have to try to weigh up and see which one's the best and you're going to get it right someday. Sometimes you're going to get it terribly wrong. Yeah. But yeah, def- definitely a topic we could, I could probably talk about. For, forever, um,
1: forever. But, yeah. I know you I, you, inter- you um, interviewed Mark Winhofer recently. One thing that I picked up from talking to him was a, that he was really overweight as a child. And that's something yeah. Overcome, and then he actually started off on the B team and decided that he wanted to be on the Triple A team, and he had to push himself to get there. So I think those are the little story, and it was very much self-driven. You know, he wanted to do it because he wanted to do it, and so I think that was an incredible story that he shared. Tell me about your sons and how you know, you're raising them in the Philippines. I'm assuming that you're intending for them to go to school there as well. What is your, how how has your thought of your own identity and maybe theirs shifted because they are also growing up as, you know, multiracial kids in a different environment from you?
0: Yeah, really, really good question. And to be honest, I don't really have a very good answer. Uh, It's it's something that we struggle with daily. Because, you know, on on this, especially with the current situation with with COVID, so just to give you an idea, we here are in the longest lockdown in the world. So we haven't come out of lockdown since March. So uh, opportunities for kids to get out and do anything recreationally is very, very limited. So a lot of that is confined to them sort of riding bikes on the street, going swimming. Occasionally we might meet up with some friends in a park and, we'll, you know, we'll play some football. But that social interaction is, is really limited at the moment. He's being homeschooled by his mother. So the more traditional ways in which they would interact with Filipinos is just not happening. You know, it really isn't happening. Prior to the COVID situation, with my oldest boy, like we, I, I run a football academy, and we have people from a multitude of different backgrounds. Everything from kids from um, underprivileged backgrounds who be scholar, all the way through to you know your most affluent, uh, you know sons of of senators um you know big time politicians celebrities you know you, you name it we, we've we've got the full gambit so that was nice when he's going to football and he's mixing with I, I remember my wife took a picture and he was like she was like look at this it's crazy and they were interlocked they were waiting to watch they were watching another team playing they were waiting to go on the pitch and they were all arm in arm interlocked and i think there was like eight kids and we had uh, japanese kids african kids filipino kids australian kids german kids you know, they're all together and they're only like five, six years old, but you know, they don't know any different. And I love that aspect. So it's not necessarily the elements of Philip being Filipino that he's missing out on at the moment that worries me. It's the benefit of having this hot pot of different cultures and different philosophies and ideals that all of these different individuals bring to the table. You know, he's got like Japanese friends and they're so respectful, you know, really... I mean, just your prototypical, how you imagine Japanese people to be, right? And then, I mean, you know what Iranians like. Got, we've got friends who are Iranian, and they're, you know, they're loud, and they're super chatty and gregarious. And it's like, you know, that, that aspect is great. Um, we've, got, we've got an Italian kid in our academy, and you know, he's, he's, you know, the mother's like, they're gesticulating all the time. So, like, he's exposed to all these different things. And he might not realize it now, but I think as he gets older, he'll realize, wow, like, I, I, I was... I was different, but all of my friends were different. I could pick and choose from all these different types of cultures, different attitudes, mindsets. You know, maybe he can formulate his own ideals on what he thinks is right, wrong, what's good, what's bad. And I I like that. I like that because it shouldn't necessarily be dictated to by me, mum, the environment. He, He can come up with his own conclusion. So I like that element of it. It's For me, it is a shame, though, that he's not able to really fully understand maybe his Filipino side by not being able to go to school, you know, and, and be in front of people who can deliver that message, whether it be a teacher or through his peers at school. So that's something he's missing out on at the moment. And that's sad. That, that's, that's difficult. But I'm hoping, you know, once this pandemic situation resolves, then we can kind of pick up that slack and then see how, how the world looks when that finishes. Because whether we're going to be here or not, I don't know. Like that, that, that's all dependent on how things transpire. So whether he grows up here, whether he grows up in the UK or or America, who knows, but, um, yeah, I'm hoping you just, you can just take those little aspects, you know, from, from being here in the Philippines and then, you know, hopefully that can affect them in, in, in later on in life.
1: So, so the U S is on the table for your family as well.
0: Oh, everywhere's on the table. I, I don't, who knows, who knows where we'll end up. You know, I, I'm certainly not. And if anything, it's this pandemic has allowed me to gain a little bit of perspective and understand that, you know, he can't make too many long term plans because everything is, is, is so whimsical right now. So yeah, who knows where we're going to end up in the future? Right now, we're really happy living here. But to be honest, it, it's it's day by day. And if we look any further than that, I think we're going to be in a in a spot of trouble. So yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how it is right now with the kids.
1: Yeah, and I think COVID also teaches you to take risks because tomorrow is tomorrow, and you know why wait another day to 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 live the life that. Um, maybe sings to you. And I think in a way you're doing that because you are living in the Philippines and that's already such a deviation. On our last episode with Chris Greatwich.
0: We had Neil Etheridge on the podcast and he was talking about his issues with mental health. This is a guy who's playing in the English Premier League at the time you know, the biggest football league in the world, earning incredible money. And he was depressed, you know, and he was saying how he had mental health issues and how he had to go and speak to us to a psychologist. And I never knew that. He told me on the show. I would consider him one of my closest friends, you know what I mean? Like, okay, but you just don't have those conversations. You, You know, a lot of it is quite superficial chat. So until you sit down and talk with these people, you never really know the full story.